Thank you, Rich. I want to thank Luke and Nathan for leading us in worship this morning. Thanks for filling in, you guys. Really appreciate it. Um, when I invite our children to Children's Church, um, meet the your teacher at the back there. It's just a more age-appropriate setting for them to hear the scriptures. Um, and uh, while they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, um, just singing Revelation song and thinking of that vision of heaven gathered around your throne and praising you and hearing angels yell, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, that just is so invigorating. It is so fascinating. It is so intimidating and drawing and all of those things to think of all of that perfection coming together. Lord, I pray that uh, this vision of you on your throne would, would infect us and give us strength and power, would increase our faith, cause us to love and to trust you more. And Lord, as we look into Stephen's vision of that, of you on your throne, Lord, would you lead us through Stephen's example into that, that beautiful vision of who you are. And uh, Father, I want to pray for other churches around the world, especially this week we heard from Sai, uh, who is a, a pastor in Nanying, China. Um, Lord, how the pastor of the church, the music minister, and the church administrator were arrested in the church immediate, immediately following the service. And Lord, we forget that um, religious persecution continues to happen in China. And so we pray for uh, Sai's church uh, for the saints that gather every morning, every uh, week to, to worship you together, Lord, that they would find a place um, that would um, allow them to gather and to worship, uh, would cause them to elude the, um, the critical gaze of the government, but uh, cause them to rejoice in you. We pray for your protection on them, especially Sai and, and um, Judith as they return to China. Uh, Lord, would you keep them safe as well? Fit them for gospel ministry and lead them to follow and to trust you. And Lord, I want to pray for uh, Lilith Stevens' mother, uh, Silvard, who's been diagnosed with cancer. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, the cancer would be treatable, that she would be able to, um, to survive this, that you would take care of her. Lord, in this, in this time, I pray that you would show to Silvard your love and your compassion, your care for her. And uh, Lord, for Lilith and the rest of the family, would you strengthen them as they, um, as they watch their mother um, battle this this disease. Father, have mercy on the whole family, and I pray that you would demonstrate your glory to them in healing Silvard, if that's your desire, if that's the best possible thing to happen. And if not, Lord, I pray that uh, you would demonstrate your mercy and your grace as you provide for them in her absence. But we do ask, Lord, would you please heal her in a miraculous way, a way that she would be able to brag about what you've done and who you are that she would be able to tell other people about how powerful her God is, that cancer doesn't stand a chance against him. So, Lord, have mercy. And, Lord, as we gather now, I pray that we would be um, overwhelmed by your word, that you would show us from your word why you are worthy of all power, majesty, glory, honor. All riches belong to you. Why, Lord, it is that we can trust you in that way. Be with us now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in uh, finishing chapter 7. We're finishing the story of Stephen. And I really appreciate that, that um, Rich backed us up a little bit to give us some context. Because what Stephen says at the end really is going to come into this section as they, as they martyr him, as they kill him. is really going to be important. So we did need to hear that to, to remember what were his words. What was his accusation against the leaders in Israel at that time that made them so angry? 
And so as we look at Stephen's martyrdom this morning, we're going to see basically three phases. The first part is going to be Stephen's vision, which is 54 through 56. What did Stephen see? So we'll see Stephen's visions, we'll hear about their violence, and then we finally get to see Stephen's death. And, um, and we're going to learn again what it means to be a disciple from Stephen's example. So first of all, uh, Stephen's vision. And it starts out by saying they, they heard these things and they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Um, does that mean they literally ground their teeth at them? That, that's a way of saying this is how angry they were. Have you ever been so angry you, you clench your jaws? You're just so mad that you, you get that, that snarl. That's what's going on. That's the picture. So imagine the mob, the crowd, the leaders with this attitude. They're so mad at him that they're all clenching their teeth and they balled up their fists. They're that angry with Stephen at this point. So that's the picture. That's what he's facing. Now here's what happens. is Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. What have we heard about Stephen so far that he was full of? In, in the beginning of the chapter, we heard he was full of grace. And he was full of power. And now we hear he's full of the Holy Spirit. Guess what? They're all saying the same thing. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. So he is filled with God's grace, and that exudes itself in his power. He, they couldn't resist his preaching. They couldn't resist what he was saying because he was so filled with the power. He was so filled with grace. And now he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. Do you realize how rare that is, that somebody gazes into heaven and sees the glory of God? Think about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah in chapter 6, he sees the temple filled with God's glory and the train of God's robe filling it. Did he see into heaven? He saw a manifestation of God's glory on earth. He didn't see into heaven. Or Ezekiel at the beginning with this bizarre image of these multi-faced creatures with wheels with eyes on them roaming around. Where did he see that? He saw that near the channel Kabar. He didn't peer into heaven and to see that. He saw a manifestation of heaven on earth. Or even Paul. Paul talks about a man he knew, he's speaking of himself, who went into the third heaven. He didn't stand on earth and peer into heaven. He was actually killed and in heaven he saw these things. And then God sent him back. It's extraordinarily rare that anybody would be standing on earth and look up into the sky and see into heaven. So what Stephen is, is experiencing here is unique. So I always ask this question, is this, um, is this prescriptive or is it descriptive? Well, I'm pretty sure it's descriptive because there's no way we can make heaven open so that we can peer into it. If we did, we would on a regular basis because it's so beautiful. What about Jesus' baptism? Do you remember Jesus' baptism? The heavens opened and nobody saw anything except for a dove descending from it. The Holy Spirit came down. So again, it's God's manifestation on earth. There's something unique about Stephen's experience here where he sees into heaven. And it sounds almost like I'm just nitpicking, but it really is important. There's something significant going on here because of the next thing it says, it says, and he saw the glory of God. Now, let me come back to the glory of God in a minute. There's a little bit more that I want to unpack before we get to it, and it'll help us understand what he means by he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What an experience. What, what a thing to see. So he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God which was Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why is Jesus standing at the right hand of God? 
There's two places, at least two places in the Bible, that talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. This is where he says he's actually standing. So Jesus in Luke twenty two sixty seven said, uh, the crowds ask him, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, I, I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus himself said he would be seated at the right hand. Hebrews 12, actually there's a couple of places in, in Hebrews where it says it, but it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So why is Jesus standing in this vision? Well, we don't really know because he doesn't really explain it, does he? He simply says Jesus is standing. So as I was reading through some of the commentaries, there's different theories. One of them is it just doesn't matter. It's immaterial. It doesn't matter if he's standing or sitting. The point is he was at the right hand of God. The problem with that is, is Jesus just a spirit in heaven right now? Jesus died physically in a physical body. He was buried in a physical body. He rose in a physical body, and he ascended into heaven in a physical body. So if this physical body is in heaven, it's doing something. It's either seated or it's standing. So I don't think it's inconsequential to say Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. It means something. So I'm going to reject that one right out. Sorry if that's your favorite one. Um, you can ask me about it later. Um, so here's the other thing is some people read it and they say he's standing because in those days a judge would stand to render a judgment. So as he's looking on Stephen, he's looking at the situation, he is about to judge these people for, for what they're about to do to his servant. So he rises as a judge to judge people. The other idea is that he rises to receive Stephen. He stands up to have his servant come in, and he's going to welcome him. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Um, so what is it? I think it could be both of these. It, it probably is both of them because of what Stephen says at the end as he's dying. The first thing he says is, don't hold this sin against them. So he's telling a judge to not hold a sin against somebody who's being judged. So, so Jesus may be standing as a judge. He's also standing to receive his servant because what does a judge do? Does a judge always render a guilty plea or a guilty verdict? Cannot a judge also say this person's innocent or this law doesn't apply to this person or this person was justified? So uh, just because he's the judge doesn't mean he's not standing up to welcome his servant in. He's going to judge the people and go, you're guilty. And he's going to judge Stephen and go, you're righteous because you are filled with grace because you're filled with power, because you're filled with my Holy Spirit, I have determined you to be righteous. So he stands to receive it. And so in both senses, he's a judge, but he's also receiving. So that's why he's standing. And like I said, it's not, not important. It matters that he's standing up there. Now the part that I think this will feed into to help us understand, Stephen saw the glory of God. What does that mean? We, we, I think we always think of the glory of God as this bright glow. Um, when Ezekiel saw the glory of God, it was bright. It was like burnished metal. It was like metal in a furnace. But it wasn't just because it was bright. There was something more going on. So what do we mean when we talk about God's glory? Uh, one of the dictionaries I looked it up, it says, it does not refer to God in his essential nature, but to the luminous manifestation of his person, his glorious revelation of himself. That's a dictionary way of saying it. <laughs> Let me try to say that the way a preacher would say that and say it a little bit better. And I'm not going to beat around the bush. I, I went right to John Piper on this. I think John Piper, when it comes to the glory of God, is the best writer, the best speaker on it. 
And so Piper is talking about the glory of God, and what he says is God's glory is the manifestation of his perfections and his excellencies. God is holy, but he shows forth his glory. So when you see his glory, what you're seeing is the manifestation of his perfections, his excellencies, all that he is, all how beautiful he is, everything wonderful and great about him. And the reason that he says that is he appeals to Isaiah 63, or 63, he appeals to Isaiah 6.3, where Isaiah sees into heaven and he hears the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So the angels announce that he's holy, and they don't just say it once, they say it three times. That means extraordinarily holy, profoundly holy, above everything and all else, he is holy. That's who God is, is he's holy. And then the next thing they say is, the whole earth is full of his holiness? No, they say the full, the, he's so holy, he's ultimately holy, and the whole earth is full of his glory. So here's how Piper unpacks that, is he says what glory is, is glory is the expression of God's holiness to his creation. When we see God's glory, what we see is we see his, whole, his holiness being projected into uh, creation. This is how he explains it. He says in Leviticus 10.3, God says, I will be shown to be holy among those who draw near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. God shows himself to be holy. What we see is his glory, the beautiness of his holiness. The holiness of God is his concealed glory. The glory of God is his revealed holiness. So does that make sense? When, when, uh, when Stephen looks up into heaven and he sees God's glory, what he's seeing is the amount of holiness that God is revealing to him. It's, it's showing as much as God has revealed about himself to Stephen at that time. And so he sees the beauty, the perfection, the excellencies, all of these wonderful things about God he's getting a glimpse of in that, that moment. That's what his holiness is. So here's the problem. God told Moses, no man may see my face and live. So how is it that Stephen is able to look in heaven and see God's glory? When Moses said, I want to see your, your glory, God told Moses, I'm going to hide you and let my, I will pass before you. You'll get to see the afterglow. You'll see my back, but you cannot see my face because no man may see my face and live. What's going on there? That Stephen is able to look into heaven and to see this and survive briefly until he gets stoned. What's happening here is Moses didn't see God's face. He saw his glory. To see his face would to say, to know and to see everything about me. And God says, human beings, created beings can't do that. It's impossible for them to see all that I am, which is what he means by my face. Does God have a face? God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical face. But he does have a face in the sense of all who he is, everything that represents him. So instead, he tells, he tells Moses, no, you can't see my face, but you can see my glory. My glory is as much as I'm going to reveal to creation about who I am. Then the other part that'll help us unlock this a little bit is when in John, John is writing about Jesus in chapter 1 and in verse 18, he says, no one has seen God at any time. Well, didn't Stephen just see God? And John wrote his gospel after Stephen saw God. 
Didn't Moses see God when he was on the, on the mountain? He talked to him face to face is what it says. Didn't Abraham see God as he was uh, met his three friends under the tree and fed them? Didn't Jacob see God as he watched a ladder be erected over him and uh, angels ascending and descending to God? So what does John mean there when it says uh, no one has seen God at any time? Well, I think what he's getting at is he's saying that no one has seen God's face his fullness, all of who he is. But John goes on and he carefully explains, no one has seen God at any time. The only God who is with him, who is at his side, has made him known. Jesus is the one who makes God known to us. Jesus is God's glory brought to us. He is how God comes to us is in the person of Jesus. So when, when Stephen looks up into heaven and he says he saw Jesus standing at God's right hand, what he's saying is, I saw in the face of Jesus the glory of God. I could tell he was at God's right hand because there was something mysterious that I couldn't understand that he was standing next to, and I knew that that was God. But as I looked into heaven, I saw the glory of God because that's where Jesus was. Jesus is the one who brings us the glory of God. And I get that from 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where Paul says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. No one can see God's face and live. We can look and see in Jesus' face the glory of God. And don't forget what face means. Face is a way of saying everything this person is, all this person is. So when we look in Jesus' face, when we get all of Jesus as he's been revealed to us, what we're getting is all the glory that God is revealing to creation at this time. So when Stephen looks to heaven and he sees Jesus standing at God's right hand, he sees the glory of God. He sees everything that God has got to say to us in the face of Jesus. Now, does this mean we'll never get all of that? We will never know all of who God is? Here's the great thing. We got all eternity to work on it. We will be with him throughout the rest of eternity, and we will be growing in our understanding of him and seeing more and more. So as he reveals his glory in creation, as much as of him as he is going to reveal, we get that now, and we can work on that now in this broken and this fallen world with these corrupted, sin-corrupted brains and these poor understandings. We can work on that, and we can get a taste of it, and it can blow our minds. And the great news is, when we die and we're resurrected and we stand with Jesus like he is at, at the throne of God, we spend the rest of eternity seeing more of him and more of him and more of him and more of him. And this is where I get that from. He says, in, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror, mirror dimly. We look through a mirror at this stage in our lives and we can barely see anything. It's a dark mirror. We look through this mirror. We just barely see what's going on. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I missed a part. He says, now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. We see God in a mirror dimly, but in the new heavens and the new earth, we will see him face to face. Now we know in part, then we will know fully. Our understanding of who God is, of all of his glory, all of his holiness, all of his perfections, all of his excellencies revealed themselves to us over history for eternity. And you know what? They never get exhausted. Every day in eternity will go, I learned something new about God. I had no idea he was like that. I learned something new about God that I, I didn't know before. Endlessly. 
because he is so rich and so beautiful and so complex. This is the image that Stephen is given. This is the picture that Stephen is allowed to see. He didn't tear heaven open. God opened heaven to him and opened his eyes so that he could see this. Do you think the rest of the people that were there saw that? If they had seen that, if they had that same vision, and they saw Jesus ascended and standing at the right hand, what would their reaction be? Would there be, oh, we've got to stone Stephen now? They would see God and his glory revealed in Jesus Christ and probably stop in their tracks. So this is not a physical God ripped open the sky. This is a spiritual apprehension of God's glory. This is something God revealed specific to, specifically to Stephen. And Stephen, since he's a good messenger, he looks around him and he says, behold. Anybody here say behold? We don't use that word anymore. What he's telling them is, you guys stop and listen to me for a second. I see Jesus standing at God's right hand. He's still announcing the gospel to those who are about to attack him, to those who are so mad they balled up their fists, grind their teeth, and yell at him. He's still announcing to them the good news. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. And they refuse to believe it. They refuse to accept it. So God's glory is being shown as he judges the nation, those who are opposed to him, as he judges uh, Stephen and finds him righteous. He, we see God's glory being revealed in that. And that's the vision that Stephen received. And you want to know something about Christians? The thing about Christians is we believe Stephen. We actually believe that this Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who was crucified, who died, was buried, who rose again, is now ascended and in heaven at the right hand of God. We actually believe that. That is really true. And just like Stephen, that gives us hope. Because we know that our Savior is in heaven at the right hand of glory at the right hand of power, at the right hand of authority. We believe this Jesus, who we appeal to and ask him to save us, has this kind of authority. It has all been given to him to judge. We believe that he has that power and that authority to send his Holy Spirit to people, to fill them with his spirit, to fill them with grace, to enable them with power. We actually believe that to be true. We don't read Stephen's account and go, oh, well, you know, he probably got hit in the head and seen visions or something. We say, no, this is actual. This really happened. This is the real current state of things in heaven is Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. This vision, when we'll see at the end of the sermon, when we get to his death, is crucial. It is vitally important. So what happens next is Stephen one more time announces Jesus to them, and again they're enraged. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why is it that the crowd would stone Stephen to death when in John 18.31, when the leaders go to Pilate, they say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So why is it they refuse to put Jesus to death, but they rush right in and kill Stephen? It wasn't, it wasn't any more lawful to kill Stephen after Jesus' death than when it was in Jesus' time. So what, what's going on there? Well, here's what's happening. There's a number of things that are at play in this. First of all, the reason that the, the leaders, the religious leaders, the, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, didn't kill Jesus themselves is because they were terrified of the crowd. Do you remember him saying that over and over again? 
That's why we have to hire Judas to betray him, because we've got to find him when he's somewhere where nobody else sees. So we can go off and we can grab him and we can arrest him, because if we do it right in the middle of the temple, we're going to cause a riot. Everybody loves him. We hate his guts. So that's the first thing, is they were facing this problem, this legal problem. It wasn't so much a legal problem. It was the, the mob, the crowd would be mad at them. But what happens with Stephen? It wasn't the leaders who dragged him out and, and uh, murdered him. It was the mob this time. So that crowd that was, that was delighting in Jesus and just thrilled with who he is, by this point, have largely become Christians. They, they have, by and large, turned themselves over to Jesus. So now they're the ones who are allied with him and kind of frightened because the leaders are, are getting angry. The mob that's left are the people who have rejected Jesus, and they rush on Stephen, and they stone him to death. They don't care about the law. That's not their concern. The leaders are worried, well, if we do this, we may lose our position, and you know, if we cause too much of a stink, then the Romans will come rushing back in, and it'll, it's just going to be nasty, so we'll, we'll do it sneakily. But the mob doesn't care. They are so enraged at Stephen, they rush upon him and they kill him. So that's the difference between Jesus' execution and Stephen's. But other than that, there's some similarities too. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed at him together. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Do you realize what they've just done is they vindicated everything Stephen said about them? Every single thing. They stopped their ears. What Stephen told them is you are uncircumcised of heart and of ear. And they stopped their ears. You're uncircumcised of heart. You haven't been born again. You're uncircumcised of ear. You won't listen to the gospel. And the response is they put their hands over their ears. They rushed together at him. He said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which one did they not kill? And now what they do is they rush at him and they grab him and they're going to kill him. You're doing exactly what your fathers did. You have vindicated everything I've just said about you. You've proved everything I said about you was correct. And, and also, he got that from Jesus because Jesus in Luke 13 says, it cannot be that a prophet should, be, should perish away from Jerusalem. All the prophets have been killed, have been killed in Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And what do they do? More of the same. Stephen comes to them, he's preaching, he's, people can't resist his, his authority with which he's teaching. They see the demonstration of the miracles, and what do they do? They kill the ones who've been sent to them. They're continuing to do exactly what they had done all along. Why are they doing this? Well, if Stephen is right so far about these things, maybe he's right about the reason, too. Do you remember last week what the reason was? Because they cling to the works of their hands. They like being in control. They like being the one who called the shots. And to have a God who doesn't quite fit into that box, that's uncomfortable. The way I pictured it was they have like a sketch of who God is. They get it from the law and the prophets, and they got this sketch. It's incomplete. It's not filled in. It's not particularly well drawn. But they get the shapes, the contours. They get the idea of who God is. And you know what they do? Is they sit down and they worship that sketch. They think this sketch is it. So when God himself comes to them in the person of Jesus Christ, and he says, I am who I am, they compare him to the sketch, and they go, no, you're not. The sketch looks like this. And what is happening is God is saying, no, there's more to me than, than you have there. I'm trying to explain the next stage in my revelation of who I am. But they are so stuck on the work of their hands, they're going to cling to that picture. 
They're going to cling to that sketch and go, no, you're not. So when they look at Stephen announcing to them who this righteous one is, the one that you killed, they hate it. That's not the work of our hands. That's something God's doing apart from us, and we're not comfortable with that. So they, they, they rush on, on uh, Stephen because he's, he's challenging their view of God. But what did Stephen just see? He didn't see a sketch. He saw heavens opened. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He didn't see a, a portion of who this is. He saw the fullness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the people hate it. They don't want that. They want the God that they can control. They want the God who they can manipulate and the, the one that they can carry around and set up with the way they like. Not the God who is untamable, uncageable. The God who's going to come however he's going to come. That's not satisfactory to them. That's, that's terrifying. And so this is what opposition to the gospel often looks like. It's violent. Either, if you look kind of through the history of opposition to the gospel, usually what happens is one of two things, from my observations. Maybe, maybe you're familiar with some other ones. Either the, go the gospel is accepted and adapted so that it, it can't do anybody any harm now. It's just this national token kind of thing, or it's violently opposed. So this morning I prayed for Sai and his church in, in China. Um, everybody's thinking, oh, China is all cool now, you know, especially with religion and stuff. They're not. They are really persecuting people. Sai was telling us about some of the things that go on. They were worshiping, and the authorities, there's a religious police, came in and arrested the pastor, because he was up front talking, he must be in charge, the music leader, because they were leading things, and their administrator, and hauled him off to jail overnight because they said, you're, you're worshiping in an unlicensed venue. That, that they were intimidating. They were, they were trying to intimidate them. They were trying to shut down this church from meeting. The, the church, apparently, the government in that area is okay as long as it doesn't get to be more than 100 people. So keep it small, and they, they won't bother you. You get a little bit close to that, they get kind of dodgy. That happens. There is persecution in the world still going on. Um, opposition to the gospel. Uh, have you heard about Andrew Brunson? Brunson. He's a pastor who's in Turkey. And he's been ministering in Turkey for about two or three years. And the Turkish government came and arrested him. He's an American from North Carolina. He's been arrested for ministering in Turkey because they said he joined an armed and terrorist group. Because he, they think he supported the, um, the coup against uh, Erdogan in 2016. He didn't. What it is is Turkey is supposed to be a secular country, and so they're supposed to just tolerate religion, but they don't. This is the opposition to the gospel that you see is when somebody preaches the gospel, either it gets adopted and adapted and, and dumbed down, or it gets violent opposition. Very, very, very seldom will you see anybody hear the gospel and go, eh, whatever. Not care, just turn a blind eye to it. So that's what's happening with Stephen is they're hearing the gospel. They're hearing about Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and it enrages them. Because what an audacious claim to say that a man could be standing in heaven. Who do you think you are? And so they, they, they're turned violent and they arrest him. And they drag him out of the city and they stone him. Now, they're being legal here because the law says you've got to drag him out of the city. You've got to take him outside the camp and stone him. So good for them. Aren't they doing a good thing? You think God's pleased that they dragged him out of the city? You know, because we don't want you to violate the law as you murder this man whom I sent to you as a prophet. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. It just doesn't make any kind of sense. So in the end, here's what's happening. As they were stoning Stephen, as the rocks are flying at Stephen, 
Stephen called out in a loud voice, Jesus, receive my spirit. He knows he's about to die. And does he call out, uh, Abraham, I want to be at your bosom? Does he call out, uh, God, send me to a comfortable place in Sheol? He appeals to the one he knows who has the authority to save his soul. Lord Jesus, receive my soul. He's not expecting to go to some nebulous heaven that, that is just undefined. He's expecting to go to Jesus. That's what his expectation is. And so as the stones continue to fly, he falls to his knees and he prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Jesus did the very same thing. When he was dying, he said, Father, don't hold this against them. But the difference is, Jesus said, they don't know what they're doing. And Stephen didn't say that because they knew exactly what they were doing. They fully understood what they were doing. They were murdering one of God's prophets because they didn't like the message. But Stephen still prays for them. Lord, don't hold this sin against him. Why would he do that? What did Jesus tell us to do for our enemies? Take them to court and sue them when they stone us? So love your enemy and pray for them. So even in his death, Stephen is about to die. He is about to expire. And he prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Continue to bring them the gospel again and again. Maybe they'll believe. Open their ears that they might hear. He continues to hope for his brethren that they would come to faith. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. I would hope that if I was being stoned, I would be able to say that. Instead of, God, nail them. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. Nail them. Um, and then finally it says, and when he had said all of this, he fell asleep. Does it mean he just drifted off? He got hit in the head, and so now he's taking a concussion nap. That's not what it means. The words for um, death, one of the metaphors that are used in the New Testament often is falling asleep. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits from those who have fallen asleep. That means dead. That doesn't mean that Jesus was the first, one, uh, first fruits of those who take naps. That means risen from the dead. So that's what's going on is, is Stephen now dies. He has, as the metaphor is used, is, is falls asleep. He has fallen asleep. So though he's died, he's, he's received his reward, hasn't he? Or you could say through his death, he receives his reward. Where is he now? Where did Stephen go? What did he ask? He asked, Jesus, receive my spirit. His body is still laying there on the ground with a bunch of stones on top of it, but his spirit is now with Jesus in heaven. That's why Paul says to, to die is, is to gain because my soul departs and to be with Jesus is better, but to be here is I'm working with you. That's, that's a good thing too. So what happens to the Christian is not we fall asleep as in we blank out until the resurrection. What happens to the Christian is we die and our soul is with Jesus at that moment until the resurrection. And then in the resurrection, our body is made new like Jesus' body in heaven, and our soul is reunited with our body, and that's the way we're supposed to be. Because one of the things that doesn't rise with our body is our sin. We're set free. We're liberated. We are now able to stand with God in glory because our sin has been successfully and thoroughly dealt with. And so that's what, that's what Stephen is doing right now as he's waiting for the resurrection of his body to be reunited, put together again, so that he can stand with Christ in glory. And here's the thing. There's a throne in this, right? He's standing, Jesus is standing at, at God's right hand, 
He's standing at the throne of glory. That's where we go. Revelation 3.21, as, as Jesus writes to the church, he says, Those who, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down on my father's throne. That doesn't mean in the same seat. The throne was more than just a chair. The throne was actually a dais that that was on. So you would approach the throne. You would walk up to the throne. You would be on the throne. So that's the promise here is we will be with Jesus. Jesus doesn't leave his father's side so that we can be with him. The reason that he died and rose again is so that as he ascends to his place next to his father, he draws us in. He pulls us in. We get to stand with him on his throne next to his father. In that glory, that beautiful vision of the glory of God, the fullness of who he is, that's where we're drawn into. And this is the promise that Jesus made in John 14. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go, um, would I have told, I'm sorry, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, where, that where I am, you may be also. This is why Stephen's vision is so important for us. This is why it's so crucial that, that Stephen reported this vision, that Luke wrote it down, that we get to hear it. This is the promise that we have. So as we're going through life, as we're facing struggles, as we're facing difficulties, what we need to remember is our king, our master, is standing at the right hand of God in heaven. Really, physically, actually standing next to God in heaven. He is standing right there with all authority. All authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth. And he stands there. And whose side is he on? Who, is he, who has he brought to himself? Us. So when we're facing resistance, opposition, difficulty in life, we need to remember Stephen's vision. The only way Stephen could withstand this, the only way he could possibly stand there and be stoned to death and look at these people and say, Jesus, don't hold this against them, is because he's got a vision of something much greater. Lord, they're going to kill me, and I get to be with you. Lord, they're going to execute me. They're going to stone me. It's going to hurt. As my bones break, as I get a concussion, it's going to really hurt for a second. And then, Jesus, I'm going to ascend and be with you. I'm going to be waiting for my body to, to join me in heaven with you. This is the vision. This is that, that vision of heaven, this vision of the future that we need to have, that we need to put our hope in so that we can face the trials, so that we can face the difficulties, so that hardship, when it comes our way, won't crush us. I have put my hope in this Jesus. And that Jesus is standing even now in heaven at the right hand of glory. And I get to see his face. And in his face, understand who God is. Has the world defeated God? Has, has, has Erdogan in Turkey defeated God? Has the Chinese government defeated God? Absolutely not. These people can go back and can face those difficulties because they know who wins. There's just a momentary time in between where we have to live and die. That's all. After that, we get to go to this place and be with our God. So Stephen's message to the people has been that they have resisted God constantly, that God has been worked throughout history, continues to be at work. He has sent his righteous one. You continue to oppose him, and he gets killed too. Why is that? 
Why is it that God would give Stephen this, this vision when he doesn't do it hardly at all, if ever? I think it's because what comes next. So I, I read, um, or Rich read uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, or the first half of it, and Saul approved of his execution. This is one of those places in the Bible where it's a horrible chapter break. That, that sentence should have been with the end of the previous chapter because that's where we're introduced to Saul. So let's consider that there. What chapter 8 is about is this persecution that rises against the church. There will be more stoning. There will be more gnashing of teeth. There will be more plugging of ears and screaming and hollering. And what happens there is God is going to use that to propel the church out of Jerusalem. It's not on accident. It didn't get away from God that the persecution rose against his church. We needed this vision. We needed this picture of Stephen, the successful disciple of the disciples. We needed his vision of how God has been working throughout history. We needed his vision of there is opposition. There's really opposition to the gospel. And we needed his vision of heaven so that as we go out and we face resistance and persecution, we're equipped and ready to go. That's what's coming on the church next is this increased persecution. But that persecution has a purpose. There's a point to it. It's not something that God missed because our Jesus is standing at his, hand, his right hand. And he's ruling. He's still ruling his church. He's still in charge. So we needed that so we could face that persecution. So pray for, uh, pray for Sai and his church that, that God would deliver them from the persecution. There's nothing wrong with asking that. And if he doesn't, that he would show his glory through them. That these people would be, why on earth are you resisting this kind of persecution? We, we keep coming at you and you keep smiling. Pray that God would give them that kind of faith. Pray for the pastor in Turkey who's been arrested. Pray that God would keep him faithful in the midst of his arrest, that he would be committed and dedicated to the gospel in the middle of that. Because one of the things that happens here is, who approved of Stephen's execution? Saul did. What we'll hear next about Saul is Saul ravages the churches. He is going house to house and arresting people. What ultimately happens to Saul? He sounds a lot like Stephen later on in his writings. So just because you're facing somebody who's violently opposed to you doesn't mean God can't grab that person and turn them around. Saul will be one of the writers of most of the New Testament. He will be one of the premier theologians in the New Testament. And right now, he's killing people. God is sovereign even over those who oppose him. And so that's why we can pray that these people would be faithful, why we can pray for us to be faithful. That's what gives us the hope to be faithful, is Jesus is standing at the right hand of glory, judging the nations. And by judging, I don't mean just condemning. Some he condemns, some he praises. He's standing at the right hand of glory, judging. Thank you, Stephen, for announcing this instead of keeping it to yourself for saying these words instead of simply succumbing to the stones and dying. Thank you, Luke, for writing it down for us because we need this to be successful disciples. We need to see what a disciple looks like in the face of opposition. And thank you, Jesus, for opening heaven to Stephen, giving him that glimpse, giving him that glory. But ultimately, thank you for being the glory of God to us till we fully understand his holiness. We draw close enough to know who he is. Let's pray.
Lord, we do pray for the persecuted church around the world, those we know of, those we've not heard of. Lord, would you grant them a taste, a, a glimpse, a, a, a hope of your glory. May they see in the face of Jesus Christ the glory of God. And Lord, may that empower them. And Lord, we pray for the deliverance of the church. Um, it's nobody's desire that people suffer uh, because of the gospel. Um, we would prefer that, um, that the pastor in Turkey is released, that, um, that um, Sai and his church are not persecuted anymore. But Lord, in the midst of that, we know that you're sovereign and you have a purpose. And so, Lord, would you receive those who die in faith, welcome them to your throne, and use their blood, use their testimony to create more souls. Lord, I think of uh, militant Islam, the, the, the most violent portions of Islam that are so opposed to everything. Lord, would you create out of that mess of violent humanity, Lord, would you pull out a Saul who would turn and begin to lead more of those folks to Jesus Christ. Would you have mercy on them? Lord, don't hold their sin against them, but lead them to a saving knowledge of who you are. Father, in our own home nation, as there are those who are um, caricaturizing and, and diminishing what Christianity is and what it means, Lord, would you draw out from them a Saul who would speak truth and call many to yourself. Lord, give us faith. Give us the faith of Stephen, the vision of Stephen, the hope of Stephen, that we might continue to walk faithfully as your people in this town, in this time, in this place where you've put us by your sovereign design. And we ask all of these things for Jesus' sake, for the glory of God in his face, and for his church. Amen.